Welcome to the Mental Wellbeing Show, where we take a deep dive into the wonderful world of psychology and mental wellbeing. So I think the place I, I kind of wanted to start um, with you, Ben, was definition of habits, because I know you authored, a, I think, a paper in 2015 looking at um, you know all the different definitions across the literature, and two key things kind of came out, which was automaticity and context dependence. So you're able to maybe run through, you know, those two and, and just the, give us a broad definition of, of habits just to frame the conversation. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in everyday language, we use the term habit to talk about things that we do and we tend to do them repetitively, often without thinking about them. Um, you know, we, we're sometimes not able to control them and so on. Um, but the problem with that definition, the kind of lay definition is that if you see a habit as a behavior, then you can't also see habit as a cause of that behavior because habit can't be the behavior and the thing that causes behavior. So the psychologist um, has to use a definition which is more about a cause of behavior. And so according to that, I mean, the definition that I've proposed is that habit is a process, a kind of psychological process whereby when you go into a situation or when you encounter a situation that you've been in repeatedly in the past, that situation triggers an association that you've learned between that situation and a response that you usually do in that situation. And the way that we've formed these associations is by repeatedly doing things. So let's say the first time you go to um, a coffee shop, you buy yourself a coffee. If that's a satisfactory experience, then that creates an association between going to a coffee shop, buying a coffee. Now, the first time you do that, the first few times, you might need to think about what shall I do in this situation? But as that association strengthens, so it becomes, we get to the point where you don't need to think about what to do in the coffee shop. It's just become part of what you do and it's become automatic. That's when we can say that someone's formed a habit for doing it. So they're acting on the basis of this association between the situation, going to the coffee shop and the action, uh, you know, getting coffee. So according to that definition, then the, the two kind of key things are automaticity, which is where the situation triggers you to experience an impulse to do the thing that you normally do in that situation. And so you don't need to think about what you're doing. You just do it automatically. And context dependence in that you need that situational trigger for you to trigger that habit. Now, the thing is that actually you could have the same behavior that's done habitually in some situations, like in the coffee shop, or non-habitually in others, like when you're at home and you have to think, shall I have a coffee now? Shall I do something else? But that coffee shop habit can only be triggered by going to the coffee shop. So it's automatic and it's context dependent. Okay, so so that makes sense. And in terms of automaticity, then, Ben, what's the role of, say, motivation and intention, right? Because to me, automaticity implies things happen beneath conscious awareness and therefore, you know, things like motivation and, and goal-directed behavior or having goals wouldn't have too much of an impact. Is that the case with particularly strong habits? Yes and no. I mean, first of all, it depends what you mean by motivation. Some psychologists see motivation as everything that happens, you know, in the brain that causes behavior. But I think um, the, the, the other way that we sometimes think about motivation is uh, as something that we're consciously wanting to do. So some kind of conscious drive to do the behavior. Now, the thing is that when you form habits, it's thought that 
um, that conscious motivation becomes less important in triggering that behavior on a basis. So if you take a habit like getting a coffee when you go into a coffee shop, the first few times you do it, you might need that conscious motivation. You go through a deliberation process. You know, what's the appropriate response here? What would I like to do? What seems to be best for me? But when you form that association between going into a coffee shop and going to buy coffee, you don't really need that motivation anymore. The thing is, I mean, intentions are still important, but it's thought that they kind of become less important for strongly habitual behaviors. So something like getting a coffee, you know, you may still intend to do it, but if you've got a habit for doing it, you don't rely on that intention to make you do the behavior. Now we can think of other behaviors that um, where this becomes kind of more important because of course with the coffee example, you probably want to get coffee as well as having a habit for, for drinking coffee. But um, let's say, so at the moment I'm trying to, I, I've formed a habit for waking up early and doing an exercise routine. Now at first I really wanted to do that but because I've formed a habit for doing it, what it means is that actually mm -hmm. I'm increasingly finding I wake up early and think, oh, I really cannot be bothered to do this. But my habit is the thing that pushes me to get out of bed and start doing the things I need to do in order to get that, that routine done. So yes, your intentions kind of become less important. Um, they become less of a, a driving factor for habitual behaviors. But I think there's an important caveat to all of this, which is that if you really, really don't want to do your habitual behavior, you can stop yourself doing it. And sometimes you'll stop yourself doing it. So um, let's say, for example, a common habitual behavior is biting your nails when you're stressed. Now, if someone said to you, I will give you like a billion dollars if you don't bite your nails for the next 24 hours, you'd probably be able to do it because you'd have a very strong and very salient intention not to bite your nails. So that would stop you from biting your nails, even if you have a strong habit. But in day-to-day -day life, the problem is that we don't have those strong and consistently salient intentions that stop us from acting, mm. acting on our habits. So in everyday life, we're often distracted, we're, we're stressed, we're tired, so we can't always act in line with our intentions. So often we'll find ourselves acting habitually, sometimes even where we're not really um, consciously motivated to do that. As I understand it from what you're saying, you, the stronger the habit, the the less your intentions matter. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, or? yeah, that that's it. The, the the stronger your habits, the less influence your intentions have on your day to day actions. Um, but there are situations where if you really give your intentions a boost, or you know you've got particularly strong intentions or momentarily strong intentions, then you can act on your intentions. But yeah, in everyday life, we just don't usually have that. So that's why we find ourselves acting more out of habit than than intentions when we do have strong habits. And so given that, what about people who say are in a quote unquote bad or unhealthy habit, right? In the sense that, you know, they've been performing, you know, habitual behaviors like, you know, having big uh, desserts after dinner, right? And given that, intentions matter less a the intentions matter less the stronger the habit does that not paint like a bit of a, a bleak picture in in the sense that for those kinds of people um you know they're the ones who may need to actually change their habits more urgently say from a health perspective right but yeah their intentions to do so may not actually you know help in that instance 
Yeah, it, it kind of puts us in a bit of a bind if we're in a situation where we really want to do something, but we've got a habit for doing something else. So as you said, if, if you have a habit for, I don't know, eating unhealthy snacks in front of the TV and you really want to eat more healthily or just not eat those snacks, then yes, the habit poses a problem. Um, but as I said, th there are a few things that you can do here. One is, I guess, it depends how strong your intention is. If you have a very, very strong intention. So again, if you think of that example of uh, someone saying, I'll give you a billion dollars if you do this behavior, most, you know, you'd be able to do that behavior, even if it's, even if it means stopping yourself acting on habit. So that shows us that, you know, that thought experiment shows us that you can act on your intentions if you really focus on doing so. So I guess um, if you're very strongly motivated to act in, you know, in a way that counters your habits, you can, but it means kind of really prioritizing that. And by prioritizing it, what I mean is that, you know, in, if you have a habit for eating snacks in front of the TV in the evening, it's all well and good telling yourself in the morning, I'm not going to do that again this evening. But you need that motivation to not snack to be important in the situation in which it counts. So you need to feel motivated when you're in front of the TV and you would normally snack. So we do have kind of strategies that, that people can use to, to kind of put their good intentions into action. And they're really focused on identifying those situations where you do something habitually and then thinking about what your alternatives are. So one thing that you can do is try and stop yourself from going into the situation that triggers your habit. So, I mean, if it's something like you snack while you're watching TV, then think about, you know, how about you don't watch TV? Then you're, you're less likely to, to experience that, that, that snacking habit impulse. Um, the other thing you can do is try and remove access to the behavior. So if you snack in front of the TV, how about you stop yourself buying the snacks? Um, and then I guess a, a, a third option is to just be really vigilant. Watch out for that situation. You know that when you watch TV, you're going to want to eat snacks. So either tell yourself, I'm not going to eat snacks, I'm not going to eat snacks in that situation, and you know, hopefully that will work, or think about something else you could do instead. So tell yourself, I'm not going to eat snacks in front of the TV this evening. Instead, I'm going to eat fruit or something like that. So we do have options for doing that. But yeah, habits, bad habits can be a, a real kind of um, a hindrance to us acting on our good intentions. Mm, okay, so there's a couple things there. I think it sounds like you're referring to that, that habit loop, right, in terms of triggers and then a behavior that follows that trigger. And, and I think you mentioned watching TV being the trigger for... Um, you know, snacking unhealthily. And also, I think it sounds like you're referring somewhat to maybe mindfulness and being aware of, of things in the moment and what those triggers are. So maybe we can start with the habit loop, if, if that's what, in fact, you were alluding to. And, and can you maybe outline that and, and how that works within an example? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea behind the habit loop is that you encounter a trigger that triggers you to want to do a behavior. You do the behavior, you find it rewarding, that then reinforces the association between the trigger and the behavior, and it increases the likelihood that next time you're in the situation, it will trigger that want to do the behavior again. Um, so for something like, um, yeah, watching, uh, eating snacks while you're watching TV, the trigger in that situation will be watching TV. Your behavioral response is to eat snacks. The reward 
is that you quite enjoy the experience you enjoy the snacks you you may enjoy the the thing you're watching more because you're eating and so that reinforces that association between watching tv eating snacks um sorry what was the second part of your question you said there were two things that i was referring to one was the habit loop the other was, it sounds like, uh, well, I think you mentioned being aware of things in the moment and what those triggers are. So uh, I actually have come across a bit of um, research looking at mindfulness as a way to perhaps kind of get you to be more aware of these habit loops and maybe even reduce that automaticity of the behaviours. Is that something that you've seen in the research? or? Yeah, so I guess... Um... We can think of it as mindfulness. I just think of it as kind of just raising awareness of things. So, um, you know, if you do have a habit for, say, eating snacks in front of the TV, you probably won't think of what you're doing as snacking. You'll think of it as watching TV. So the main activity that you see yourself to be doing is watching TV. It just so happens that you're eating snacks while you're doing it. The problem is you're not really aware of the snack eating because your attention is focused on the TV. And also you're, if you have to think of that behavior, you, you, you portray it to yourself as watching TV. So we've done some uh, research that shows that actually if you get people to talk through the exact actions that they do in detail, you know, if, if, if you get them to walk through it, talk you through what they do, it actually makes them realize about some of the behaviors that they do that are kind of below the surface. So if you said to someone, what did you do last night? They'd say, I watched TV. And then you say, okay, so can you talk me through exactly what you went about doing? They would kind of reveal to themselves that when they were doing that, they actually spent a lot of time snacking. So you can go through that process of, of trying to get someone to talk through what they've done. And by doing that, it gives them insight into behaviors that they don't often think about. And this is this is kind of the idea behind mindfulness, making you more aware of the kind of, you know, more mundane aspects of what you do um, in particular situations. Um, and so, yeah, by doing that, it, it gives you the tools you need to think, actually, OK, so I've put on weight recently. What can I change? Well, I've just realized, actually, I, ate, I eat a lot of snacks when I'm watching TV. And so it can, yeah, it can give you the tools you need to to help stop yourself from doing that in the future because normally you might not think about um in, in terms of weight loss you might not think about that tv watching you know hour that you had yesterday evening you might think instead about the the meals that you ate when in fact a lot of your calories are probably being taken in during those times when you're not even thinking about what you're doing so again identifying what those environments are and those contextual cues from the sounds of it yeah it's 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 it is is about identifying environments, but also identifying your own behavior in those environments. Because surprisingly, you know, we we sometimes, you know, we don't know ourselves as well as we might think we do, or we don't know our behavior as well as we might think we do. Um, so if you were trying to lose weight, for example, um, one of the things that's really helpful in terms of changing your diet is self-monitoring your behavior, you know, scanning the barcodes, working out the, the calories that's in what you eat. And if you do that every time you eat, one of the ways that it's, it's so effective is it makes you aware of things that you weren't previously aware of. And it might make you aware of situations that you're eating in as well, um, that you don't commonly think of as, as situations in which you eat. So for example, when people prepare meals, Often, let's say, I don't know, you're, you're making something with cheese in it. 
you might cut, cut off a couple of extra slices and eat those while you're preparing it. And that kind of thing, you're often not aware you're doing it because you have a habit for doing it. The trigger is preparing a meal. The action that you do is to cut off a couple of slices of cheese. And it, it's it's so kind of mundane. It's so everyday. It's so automatic. You don't think about what you're doing. So by by encouraging people to think about these very small acts that they do, and realize that they do them in a habitual way, I think you can empower them to identify triggers to some of their unwanted behaviors, which is one of the first steps in actually changing those behaviors. Right, okay. And you mentioned that doing this is was done by, I think, retrospectively asking people in a study, you know, what happened before you, you ate um, that unhealthy behavior or something to that effect. So my question then is, are there ways, like applied ways, be it through an actual app on your phone or something that people can implement these self-monitoring strategies? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not aware of specific apps that do this. Well, I, I guess if you know, if you if you're using um, iOS, I don't know what it's like on Android, but you know, there's the Apple Health app, for example, that not only records your steps or lack thereof, but it will also record the times of day. So that will tell you. You know, that that gives you insight into what you're doing. It's all about gaining insight into your everyday patterns. Now, one of the things about habit, of course, is that, you know, the irony of it is that one of the reasons habit is so useful is it locks in the things that we do on a regular basis. And it means that we can do them without thinking about them. So, you know, if if you need to uh, walk to the train station to get a train each morning, you don't think about shall I walk? You don't think about how far it is because it's become a habit actually your attentional resources are diverted elsewhere. You're probably thinking about what you've got to do at work that day or or something like that. So habits are very useful in freeing up our mental resources to think about other things. But the downside of that is that when we want to change our habits, because they are things that we do automatically and we don't think about them, we kind of lose insight into how we do them. So yeah, I think anything that will give you insight into not only the behavior that you do, but the specific situations in which you do it, I think that that would be very useful in trying to change those behaviours. So we've we've covered a fair bit of awareness of those contexts, those environments in which those behaviours occur. What what about awareness of the reward value of these behaviours? Right. So I was I think unwinding anxiety. I'm not sure if it's a book you've you've heard of by Judson Brewer, and in it. Um, he kind of advocates for being more aware of the reward value of your unhealthy habits. So for example, cake might feel really good in the moment, but in actuality, you know, you might, you feel bloated or you feel a bit of a gut bomb. I think he terms it, or you feel some guilt because it's not in line with your health behaviors. Right. But, and so he, he's advocating for being more mindful of, of the reward value there. And then you'll kind of update that reward value in your brain and thus, you know, less inclined to do it moving forward. But in some of the other papers I was reading, I think a Wood and Runga review paper, I think, which you were consulted on. Yeah. Um, they made a point a number of times that habits are outcome value insensitive. So, yeah, what's the kind of the go there in terms of um, being aware of the reward value of behaviors? Yeah. So I think there's two things going on here. Um, one is that when, before you formed a habit, you know, when, when you, Let's think of something like, I don't know, eating popcorn in 
while while you're watching movies. So the first few times you watched movies and there was popcorn available, you had to think about what you wanted to do. And the reason you went for popcorn was you anticipated a reward to that and you ate it and it was quite pleasant. And so that that you found it rewarding and rewards help to consolidate that association between the trigger, which is watching movies and your response, which is to eat popcorn. So rewards are very important for when we're forming habits. But once you've got that habit, um, the rewards aren't so important in actually sustaining the habit. And in fact, um, Wendy Wood and colleagues did a, a, a fantastic study that was published just over 10 years ago now that showed that among people who have um, popcorn eating habits while they're watching movies, you can give them stale popcorn and they will even tell you that it doesn't taste very nice, but they will eat just as much of that stale popcorn as a group of people who, have, um, uh, who were given fresh popcorn purely because those people who are given stale popcorn have habits. So in other words, you know, they formed habits for eating popcorn while watching movies because it re was rewarding. But once the habit is set up, it doesn't depend on that reward anymore. So you can remove the reward and people tend to keep doing the behavior despite the fact it's no longer rewarding. But when it comes to changing behaviors, th the problem is that if you're trying to give up a bad habit, Often there will be some reward there that, okay, you're not so sensitive to it anymore. But if that reward is completely removed, um, you might find you just don't enjoy the, the behavior anymore. Or rather, no, let me rephrase that. If someone's trying to change a bad habit or replace it, replace that bad habit with a good habit, what they may find is that when they stop doing the bad habit, they realize there was a reward involved in that. Um, that is not being achieved by the good behavior. So if you are thinking about eating a different food while you're watching, um, you know, watching movies, are you going to get the same reward from eating fruit as you do from eating popcorn? Well, maybe you will, in which case that's a decent substitute. But how about we say, actually, okay, there's a lot of research on sitting time that says that sitting sitting is really bad for you. You tend to sit while you're watching movies. So instead of eating popcorn while you're watching movies, how about you do an exercise routine while you're watching movies? Now, if you tried doing that, you'd probably find that you didn't want to do that because it's not as rewarding to do an exercise routine as it is to eat popcorn while you're watching a movie. So I think the importance of what, what this tells us is that it's important in identifying what is it that you take from doing a behavior? Um, because if you want to stop doing that behavior, the best thing that you can do is think of a replacement behavior that will give you a similar reward. Alternatively, I guess the other thing that you can do is try and make yourself more attentive to the parts of a behavior that you don't realize are kind of punishing. So you mentioned in your example that, you know, people like eating cake. We all like to eat, we all like eating cake, but if you eat too much of it, well, you might feel bloated. Okay, so actually, yes, eating cake is rewarding, but eating too much cake is not as rewarding as you may think. So it may be that you can kind of work on the reward value of the, of the bad habit as much as trying to find a substitute behavior that has an equal reward value for you. Right. Okay. Very, very interesting, actually. And in the sense of, uh, if we, again, stay with this habit loop, right, in terms of you, you made a point, I think, about asking yourself, what does that behavior give you? And, and that seems to me like a really 
important kind of part of the piece in the sense that I know a lot of the unhealthy behaviors I engage in, for example, uh, scrolling on my phone more than I should. Uh, often I feel like they're a coping mechanism for something else in terms of like that often seems to happen in an emotional context of I'm stressed or there's some aversive internal state and that's a distraction, right? So yeah. it seems to me like, yeah, identifying what those triggers are and what they represent to you in your life is, is perhaps an important part of the piece as well. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there that actually a lot of your bad habits, you do them because they're rewarding in some way. And it's important that you acknowledge what the reward is. So something like social media, for example, it can just be a distraction. If you're working on something and, you know, it's really mentally effortful for you to work on this thing, you might just feel like actually you know, I'm just going to check social media now. Now, the thing is, that's really bad for your productivity. It kind of zones you out of the work that you're doing. It's, it cut, it stops your flow. It means that if you want to recover your flow, you're going to take time to return to it and so on. But you, yeah, the reason that you're using social media is because it's a distraction. Now, a lot of the time you don't think about what these rewards are. So you might just think, okay, I'm working on something and then, oh, I better just check social media and then you return to it. And it may be, in fact, that actually checking social media on that occasion wasn't rewarding for you. But the reason you're doing it is because it can potentially be rewarding for you. So there's a lot going on here. I think it, it, and, and definitely one way to, to change your behavior is to think about what is this thing giving me? And one way to think to, to find that out is if you stop doing it, what happens to you? You know, what is it that you're missing? Is it the fact that you're missing distractions um, that are kind of rewarding in some way? Is it the fact that you feel like you're missing out? You know, FOMO. What is it that, that these things give you? And often you don't think about what they give you because you do them. And so you get the rewards. So I think it is very important to think about those rewards because it's important to know what the rewards are because if you want to replace that behavior with something else, ideally you'd find something that's rewarding in the same way. Yeah, right. Very, very interesting. Yeah, the, the biggest takeaway I'm getting so far is, yeah, self-awareness of, of that whole habit loop and the different pieces there. Um, in terms of staying with social media, though, what is it about social media that is so addictive? Have you done any research there you know it seems like they or what i've heard that they pump you know millions hundreds of millions of dollars into you know engineering these apps to be you know so addictive and to to let them become habits have you looked into that at all in your research i haven't i mean no i haven't looked into why social media in particular is so kind of rewarding or addictive or however you want to put it but i i mean again you can just think about well what is it that you get from that first of all you're part of a, well, it's a social network, isn't it? Whatever social media you're using, you're connected to whoever, you know, whoever's posts you're reading, you know, so it gives you a sense of connection with other people. And there are theories saying that that sense of connectedness or relatedness to other people is a fundamental human need. So it gives you that. I think the other thing it gives you is um, a sense of being kept in the loop. You know, you know what's going on because you've seen it on social media in a way that, you know, if you're using traditional media, for example, you might not be as as in the loop. So if you yeah, it's it's like staying ahead in terms of 
in terms of social trends and so on. So I think, yeah, there are some of the reasons why social media is so addictive. I think the other thing is that, of course, um, we call it doom scrolling, don't we? This, this idea of you're using social media and it's all bad news. Now, then you'd think, well, why is anyone using it? And the reason is that there will be just one thing that you encounter every so often that you just you get something from. Now, what that thing is that you get from it, I don't know. It could just be a sense of, I know this thing about this person, or I now feel more connected to this person, or I, I feel like I'm being kept up to date. But it's those things, you know, that one experience of something positive that keeps you coming back, even though, I mean, for me personally, I don't find the experience of using social media um, rewarding in any way. You know, I, I, uh, I do find <laughs> doom scrolling to, to be a true representation of what using half of it is for me. But there will be some things that I think, oh, OK, I'm glad I looked at that because I feel I've learned something or, oh, I didn't realize that. I'm glad I know I, I now know something or I'm in the you know, I'm being kept up to date. So that it's just about that one experience that is sufficiently rewarding to keep you coming back. Mm, okay, makes sense. Um, moderation, yeah, okay. So I'll give you an example of how I'm trying to, to implement moderation in my own life, um, which I think is, is representative of, of many people, at least in my own network. So this concept of, of moderation, there's unhealthy habits in my life that I'm trying to, to work on. But often, at least my own self-talk is that, okay, it's okay to come on social media in the evening after six o'clock, right? But I also understand that, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I end up using it earlier than that. And I feel like I'm risking kind of relapse into an old habit, which I'm trying to break out of, which is using social media too prevalently. So, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on kind of this balance of moderation versus abstinence and, you know, the risk of relapse in there, if any. Yeah, it's it's a very good question. I think, frankly, it's it's a personal preference. Do you know, do you do you feel well, it's about personal preference and about, about what is most realistic for you? Do you feel that you could completely give up using social media, you know, and think about that realistically? Think about how rewarding it is. Um, for example, think about what you get from it. Think about what you wouldn't get from it if you were no longer doing it. If having gone through quite a detailed assessment of this and weighed up the pros and cons of stopping using social media or stopping doing whichever behavior you don't want to do, if you feel you could live without it, then just try and stop it altogether. Identify the triggers that, that, that um, keep you doing it. Try to avoid those triggers. If we're talking social media, delete the apps that you use and so on. But if you think, actually, it's such a big part of my life, I just can't give it up entirely, then I think the idea of moderation is useful. And I think it's about then identifying what are the triggers that make you do this behavior repeatedly. And I think what's important is that actually for, 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 for many behaviors, so let's take social media as an example, you don't have just one social media habit, you have multiple social media habits. So it may be, for example, someone may have a habit for using social media as soon as they wake up, a habit for using social media as soon as they finish their shower, a habit for using social media on their way to work, and so on. So there'll be lots of mini habits that sustain that behavior. And so thinking about moderation, 
the way that you might want to think about that is by identi- think of it as identifying some of the mini habits that you have that sustain that behavior and trying to break those. So you're, you're cutting the link between, you know, checking social media when you wake up, you're cutting the link between checking me- social media when you shower, um, but you're still allowing yourself to do it in other situations. And I think that's important because if you can identify the many triggers that you have, the many mini habits that you have that support that behavior, then you can know if you're relapsing in a sense of, in in the sense of you're doing the old specific mini habit that you didn't want to do versus you're doing the behavior in other situations. So I think the reason this is important is that, um, yeah, relapse is really facilitated by falling back into old habits so old habit associations simply doing the behavior more but in other situations isn't such of a risk for relapse if you're not triggering an old habit again right okay so let's let's stay with that then if would it be is it any more beneficial to be specific with the context you use that habit in if you're going to go down the road of moderation yes i'm still going to eat cake every now and then i'm still going to use social media every now and then whatever it is is it better to only do that in a specific context so that you kind of you know have that a very clear link and it doesn't kind of seep through into other contexts in your life that's one way of doing it yeah you could you could create or well i guess you could sustain certain habits that operate in certain contexts. So you could say, for example, you know, if it's something like eating cake, if it's someone's birthday, you're going to allow yourself to eat cake because that's such a strong trigger. If you're around a friend and it's their birthday, they may offer you some cake. So you're gonna keep that habit, that one's fine to have. And then, you know, maybe if you're out for dinner and you've finished your main course and then for, you know, for your dessert, you think you want to have cake and that's what you normally have, you know, that's fine as well. But it's about finding those other habits that make you do it repeatedly and and kind of quite often. Because, of course, thinking about a, a habit for eating cake at someone's birthday, it's not something that happens every day. So I think it's about identifying those triggers that do crop up very often in your life and trying to break those ones. And then, you know, identifying the contexts that can trigger the behavior that you're going to still allow I think that's a more sophisticated way of doing it because as soon as you say um, I'm going to cut down on this on this behavior or I'm going to stop this behavior things become you know if you say you're going to cut down your rules become a bit fuzzy you know cut down to what amount it's not very specific and how will you know if you've cut down Um, if you set yourself the rule of I'm never going to do this behavior again but actually that behavior gives you something rewarding and it's actually important to you at least you know occasionally then it's probably not a good idea to stop yourself from or to tell yourself you're going to stop doing it altogether because it's it's just not going to work it's not very realistic so yeah i think it's about identifying those situations where you're going to allow yourself to carry on doing the behavior as much as it is about finding those those specific situations where you're going to stop yourself from doing that behavior okay perfect yep so specificity of environment yeah um the last question I'd like to ask, Ben, um, it's a question I'm sure you get asked a lot on, you know, how long does it take to, to, to make a, a habit? But I'll, I'll be a bit more specific um, in the sense that I was reading a study, I think a very common co-author of yours, Philippa Lally, and 
it seems like 18 to 254 days was the range in which she found that people took to to form a range of different health-oriented behaviors in her study. So my question is not around what or how long does it take to form a habit because obviously there's going to be variability, but what are those kind of factors that influence the variability, whether they're you know between different habits or within a person or personality traits, for example, or is it you know different types of behaviors that um, lend themselves to forming a habit quicker than others? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, frankly, we don't know the answer to all of those things. Um, and it's likely going to be a combination of three different things. Factors relating to the individual who's kind of forming the habit, factors relating to um, the behavior that, it, that for which the habit is forming, and possibly, you know, factors relating to the, the situation or, or the context. Um, now, we we yeah there's a lot of research in this and we can't say what the definitive answers are but we can say that if a behavior is more rewarding for example then it's likely your former habit for doing that behavior um more readily so if i think in my own life you know i have two young children and when it comes to screen time and using youtube and so on you know they formed habits for doing that very quickly because watching stuff using youtube it's very rewarding for them so you know they probably only had to do that about three times to form that habit between feeling bored and wanting to go and watch something on youtube on the other hand something like physical activity it's rewarding but it's not rewarding in the same way and sometimes the kind of depending on what the reward is you want to get out of it the reward isn't always immediate you know feeling absolutely shattered and out of breath is for some people just not rewarding. For other people, it is rewarding. So it's about how rewarding, how immediate the reward is, and so on. But taking that physical activity example, as I said, for some people, feeling absolutely exhausted um, after a half-hour workout is very rewarding. For others, it's not. So that tells you it's about the individual and it's about their perceptions. Um, So individual factors are important. Um, We think that... uh, when it comes to forming habits for everyday things, I think if you have a tendency to like routine and to prefer routine, um, then you're more likely to form habits. So again, that's a kind of individual factor. And then when it comes to contexts or situations that can trigger your habits, well, um, I think a particularly potent one is event-based cues. So I'm talking about, you know, if you... Let's say if you want to exercise every day and you tell yourself you're going to do it at 5 p.m., um, the problem is there. I mean, you may be successful in doing that, but the problem is there that you have to consciously look out for 5 p.m. And there may be other things going on at 5 p.m. on different days that make you realize, oh, it's really difficult to do that. So that might be a difficult trigger to kind of use. On the other hand, if you can fit it in around the events that you normally do, so rather than saying, for example, you will do a workout at 5 p.m. If instead you say to yourself, you will do a workout when you finish work, then you know that's you don't have to monitor it so much. You don't need to look out for the time of 5 p.m. You just know when you finish work. So yeah, event-based cues should be better than time-based cues. But frankly, I think a lot of this is still to be discovered. Um, there's so much research that still needs to be done on this. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. That that makes a lot of sense and certainly gives, I think, people listening a lot um, to work with. And I think the biggest yeah thing for me was 
self-awareness and identifying those triggers and you know like you said those triggers can be events rather than than time um is there anything else that you wanted to to add at all um no i guess one thing that i would add Mm -hmm. is if we think about a habit as being something that causes behavior if you're trying to break a bad habit one thing to be aware of is that you might be able to stop yourself from doing the habitual behavior but the underlying habit might still be there um so let's say for example uh, you know uh, one example i always use people who uh want to lose weight and they get taken to let's say a boot camp for two weeks they go through an intensive um uh, diet and physical activity change they're doing really well what happens when they go back home well the thing is that actually in the home environment they probably have lots of triggers to unhealthy eating habits and if you avoid those triggers and go to a boot camp for two weeks well that's fantastic you've changed your behavior you know you're eating better you're doing more physical activity but when you go back to your home environment you're exposed to those triggers again so the underlying habits that you had are still there they were just what I call dormant when you're at boot camp, but they're still there. So when you get back home, they become active again. So I think this is something that's really important to acknowledge that you may be able to, you know, if you if you feel like you're being successful in changing your habitual behaviors, your bad habits, you know, great, good for you. But make sure you don't fool yourself into thinking you've necessarily changed the underlying habit association, because that association might still be there, in which case you need to think about how can you break the association and break the underlying habit as well as uh, breaking the habitual behavior.